and how I ought. And may your book, your promises, your very person appear to be very attractive to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we are introduced to the Abrahamic covenant where God came to Abraham and made a covenant. This week, especially because the New Testament calls Abraham, that man, our father of the faith. In other words, all of those people this side of the cross who have come to faith in Jesus Christ have as our model what that is supposed to mean in Abraham preeminently. And so, that's what we want to look at this morning. Abraham's faith as it unfolds in redemptive history. And to do that, I'm going to call upon the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament to help us do that. Chapter 11, I'll be reading verses 8 through 19. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What we see in this text this morning. If you look at the block, that little paragraph, verses 13 to 16, the Hebrew writer gets us right to the very essence and heart of what faith is. It's inner 
dynamics. Before, not the outward, you can't see it with your eye. What is it going on? Then in verse 17 and 19, we see it express itself outwardly in obedience. This morning I'm going to spend 90% of our time on verses 13 to 16 in the inner essence of faith, saving faith. Who are those who are of the faith of Abraham? And then 10% on seeing how it expresses itself outward in obedience. Because I'm going to come back again next week and we're going to put the emphasis next week on action. Obedience to God's commands shown through Abraham. So first, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Remember, he just mentioned Abraham and Sarah and even Isaac and Jacob back in verse 9. And so here he says, these all died in such a way that evidenced or was indicative of faith. Now you scratch your head. What is he talking about? We mean they died in faith. He goes on. Not having received the things promised. What's he saying? I think the lesson is, these, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, they died as people of faith because they didn't receive the things promised. Now, the writer to the Hebrews' point isn't because God was unfaithful. His point isn't, see, God promised and didn't deliver. His point is, the things promised are mostly not for this world. Not for this lifetime. Future. That's what he's getting at. Some are, but mainly they're not for this temporal brief life of mortality. He works it out for us as you read on in verse 13. So let's read the whole verse now. Listen to the writer. These all, Abraham especially, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The writer wants us to see in Abraham in his descendants who are of faith, that their mentality, the essence of faith, caused them to sense and feel themselves as not at home here on earth. As exiles. Away from their true homeland. And so is true of everybody who lives by faith even this side of the cross. The cross of Jesus did not say, okay, the cross happened, now all the promises are manifestly fulfilled. Not how it works. The cross made the foundation of the promises. God's faithfulness. Evident. Sure. That's the only difference. That's what Abraham's faith is 
the perfect example for New Testament Christians. No, he's an Old Testament guy. Faith didn't change. He was a born-again man, thus he had faith. And the essence of faith is demonstrated throughout his life and in this text. It is trusting in the promises, even if you die without having seen them all fulfilled. Yeah. So we now, today, this side of the cross, are exiles. We're sojourners in this world. Not at home. Listen to how Genesis 23.4 puts it. Remember, Abraham, got, he was called out of his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, into a land that he didn't know, the people he didn't know, and didn't own anything there, except finally just a plot of land to bury his wife. And he says in 23.4, I am to the sons of Heth, because he wants to buy this land. I am a sojourner. A person without a home. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Then you jump forward to his grandson Jacob, and at the end of Jacob's life, he says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning. He sees himself as an exile. This is what the Hebrew writer is seeing in Genesis. Later, David, King David, identifies with his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs. And he says in Psalm 39, verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Why? For I am a sojourner with you. I'm a guest on earth like all my fathers. Paul, in the New Testament, doesn't use the word sojourner here, but it's just as crystal clear in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, not here. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, not at home in the world, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The life of of faith. The life of Abraham is a life of a refugee, an exile. The promises of God are our real home. We've tasted many of them and have not experienced the consummation and fulfillment of them, but we've tasted of them as our text in Hebrews 11 says, we have seen them far off And they, because of that taste, affect what's going on in our value system. They affect how we think and how we act. And preeminently feel as if we are a sojourner. 
Listen to the Apostle Peter in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 8 and 9. Because Peter gets here, this is just simply this, you don't get any clearer. Do you want to know what saving faith, not all kinds of other kinds of faith. I'm a religious person. I have a faith. I said a prayer. But you want to know what saving faith, that dynamic is. Peter says clearly, though you have not seen Him, Jesus, you feel the internal desire factor here. Love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him, and thus rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So in other words, with Abraham, or what Peter's talking about, the promises of the Gospel that Abraham got in the covenant, the promises we get in the Gospel, also have infiltrated our being, that they affect how we live and what we choose. And thus it has caused us to be out of sync with the world. And so, we identify with being exiles, foreigners, aliens to the world's system. Now back to our text in Hebrews 11. Look at how the writer to the Hebrews goes on to argue now for this sojourning, exile, sensation, feeling, confession that Abraham and the patriarchs had. You see the word there in the beginning of verse 14? For. It means here's the argument. The reason they speak this way, that we are exiles, we're sojourners, is because... See it? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He's, he's saying, why is it that Abraham and the patriarchs, though they died in faith without receiving the promises, they knew and identified themselves as foreigners on this earth, that, which is faith, that's faith. Why is that faith? Because... There's a verb going on in them. An action, and that key action in that sentence is the word seeking. They were seeking. They weren't dead to desire. They sought something. They were seeking a homeland. And the point is, as you read the Genesis account, that homeland was not the plot of land Israel where Abraham was, ultimately. And it wasn't where he came from. They weren't being conformed to this world. If, as the text is going to go on to say, if that what they were seeking, the homeland they were seeking, could be found here on this earth now, look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they didn't. Because they were of faith. That means they were seeking a homeland. But they didn't find it here in this temporal world. 
They lived in tents and didn't own anything there. Why did they do that? Verse 16 gives the answer. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And so what we see clearly now, the, what is the essence of our faith, of the faith of Abraham? It is a life that seeks, oh, it wants a home. It seeks a country of its own and it desires a better one than all that this world offers. That is, quote, a heavenly one. So what we've seen up to this point in verses 13 to 16, the Hebrew writer is not talking about any action, any obedience, anything like that. It's talking about what is the dynamic that is going on in the heart of what faith is. What is its essence? And we see it considers this world and all that it has to offer. It's not stupid. Okay? And it considers the promises. Those are sentences. They're words spoken by God. I will do and give you this and that. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest and 10,000 other promises. It considers the promises, and it considers the promises of the world, and it, don't miss it, it doesn't say, I'm a Christian, I guess I'm supposed to follow the promise of God. Not what this text says. I guess it's what I'm supposed to do, and choose that one. It considers the world and what it offers, and it considers the promises of God and what it offers, and faith desires. It doesn't just choose. It desires one above the other. It sees the promise of God even from afar, and it is stunned by the overwhelming delight that it would be to its desires. That's what he said. But as it were, they desire a better country. And so, because of that desire, in this world, not of it, it feels more and more like a stranger, like an alien. That's the essence of faith. That's the essence of what it is to be a Christian. It's the essence of what it is to have Abraham as the father of our faith. Faith hears the promises of God and it desires them. It sees them as appetizing to itself to the heart of that person with the faith, yes, that would be really good. Let me just put this big parenthesis in now. Because that's true, it's not a small thing. It is 
a horrendous and in the long run a vicious thing that there are large segments of us Christians in evangelicalism that try to water down Christianity or saving faith to a mere decision. Make a decision. Say the prayer. Okay, now you're a Christian. Why why do I say that? Let it ultimately, we will see more clearly in the future, is that to treat human beings who are under the wrath of God, and there is only one means of salvation, Jesus Christ, and the only way to be connected with Him is to believe in Him, that is to have Faith in Him, biblical faith, which we are seeing clearly, is birth from desire for that object. And if you boil it down and say, just make this decision, what it ends up doing with many, many people is inoculate them from the true gospel. It's really hit me like. Last week when a 20-year-old niece of mine was really happy to tell my sister that she's now a Christian. Because, as the way she put it, so-and-so back in her homeland caused her to say a prayer and that person made her a Christian. And she's got her nice little hip Bible, which doesn't look like a Bible because that would be unhip. It looks like a magazine. And that when my sister finally tried to turn it to just the basic core of the gospel, like sin, and that there's such thing as God's judgment, she noticed very quickly my niece wasn't so excited anymore and kind of turned away slowly from the conversation. Why does it bug me? Because she's one example of millions of people that will be 33 years old instead of 20 and think, I've tried Christianity, and they don't have a clue what it is. Because well-meaning Christians have boiled it down to something it's not. And that's what we do when we think we're helping the Gospel. By hiding it. This text is clear. God chose Abraham. Our text in Hebrews is clear. To show us that faith means living and dying. Means having new desires and seeking a homeland that isn't here. Many people think, I said the prayer, that's nice. And it was said in such a contemporary, hip way. I like to be part of that. Can wear hip clothes like I've always been doing. You have little hip magazines. And we do fun things. Okay, I'm a Christian, I'll sign up. And it has nothing or no evidence that what's going on on the inside of that person is new desires for Jesus Christ. For the promises of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God put to me because I realize how wretched of a sinner I really am. Our text is clear. Verse 14, they were seeking a different kind of home. It seeks. 
Real faith seeks. Verse 16, they were desiring something better than what this earthly existence, as we know it now, could offer. They were gripped by God Himself and His otherworldly promises that they lived as exiles on this earth. Saving faith that Abraham demonstrates to us is seeing the promises of God and experiencing a change of desire, a change of values, so that you desire the promises more than what all the world has to offer. They're rooted Those promises are rooted in the person who makes them God. It seeks them. It knows them. It wants them to infiltrate one's mind and being. It quotes them. It holds to them. And it changes the way a person lives and chooses. We have seen this over the last few weeks. That Faith causes a nutty, crazy old man to start building a boat in the middle of the desert. It causes another man to leave his homeland in comfort and follow a voice. It causes Abraham to raise a knife over his most precious treasure on this earth. That's what faith is. You remember last week when we looked at the covenant, one of the core things God said and promised to Abraham and to us in the covenant was Genesis 17.7. I refresh your memory. And I, Abraham, will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here it is. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, remember, God is God. And He will be God the judge to many. The way He means this promise is a very intimate, special, caretaking, loving, your hope, your joy forever kind of God to you. Now, keep that in your mind. Keep that right back here now as we go back to our text in Hebrews 11 and look in the middle of verse 16. Note the connection with the word therefore. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Note, remember, the Hebrew writer is a believer in Christ on this side of the cross writing to Christians. He is implying, are you a Christian? Is your faith real? Do you see, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called your God. we got to let that hit, because our world, everyone thinks God's just real great. 
He's just great. Yeah, I mean, I'm a good guy. God loves... They have no clue who He is. People are hanging under God's wrath. And they're deceived and they don't know. To make a statement, God is unashamed to say, I am your God. So let's, let's get what He's actually saying here. Feel that. Now, the writer to Hebrews gives two reasons. Look at the text. He gives one reason right before it. That's why the word therefore, right? When you use the word therefore, that's an inferential particle. It's, it's saying what came before is the reason God will not be ashamed. And then he gives a reason right after it. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. See the next word? For, it means because, here's the reason, God has prepared for them a city. So, reason number one, because God prepared for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarch. He prepared for them a home. Okay? Now, the reason that comes before the therefore. Here it is. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. How is it that God is not ashamed? Because God promised and prepared for them a home. And they desire it. Therefore, He's not ashamed to be called their God. Just think about that for a moment. What do we need to do to have God say, Joe, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Do we need to go out and do some great feat, some great work that will just wow God and say, Woo! Okay. Look what you have done. I'm not ashamed. Do you need to go home and clean up your moral values? What do we need to do? That's not it. Do you need to be more religious, participate more in religious activities? Then God will say, I'm closer to you now. I'm not ashamed. miss it by a million miles if you think that. The Pharisee thought that. He's in church. He's in the temple. Thank God I'm not like them. God must really be unashamed of me. I tithe of my little ill and human even. This text is simple and it is stunningly clear. What must we do? Desire. They desired a better country. The one God said, I want to give this to you. And they said, yes, I desire that. That's it. That's why only faith pleases Him. And without faith, it's impossible to please. Because faith is the desire factory of your heart. 
It always begins not in what you do, but in what you think and feel and desire. What you hunger for. Desire Him. Desire the city made without hands above this whole world. Desire heaven above earth. Desire God above everything. The essence of saving faith is desiring God. Now, the result of that is, think about these words in the context of the last 15, 16 weeks. Always make me, force me, ask me questions. Is what you're saying today consistent with what you have been saying in this series of redemptive history, Joe? The result of desiring God, which is the essence of faith, is the reason God says, I am unashamed to be called your God. What does that mean? Let's say that positively. Not ashamed is negative. What do you mean? I am I'm proud to be your God. I'm pleased. It pleases me, God, to be your God. Now, why would God be pleased with desiring God? Simply because that is the essence of honoring God. Remember where we started in this series. Who's God? He is the eternal, self-sufficient one who has been loving appropriately. It's the essence of righteousness and holiness. Loving the image of Himself, His own perfections in the face of the Son from all eternity. And then God deliberately, purposefully, means for reason, created you and me. Why? So that He would extend the beauty and the glory and the honor of His name. That is, to say it this way, to glorify Himself through mankind. And then we saw the fall and God held up the glory of His name through judgment, through wrath. And now we see all of a sudden, out of the blue, God is not ashamed to call Abraham His Son or Him His God. Don't take that light and say, how can that work? And we, I've already seen the cross on purpose early on in this series because of the cross. Because the cross not only bought the possibility of forgiveness of sins, it bought the means that brings you to God. It bought the faith of Abraham. It's a gift. And it is the essence of that faith which is the means through which God will say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. The essence of faith is that only thing in all existence that a creature could have toward the Creator that would not be offensive and sinful to God. What do I mean? Think about faith. Nobody brags because they get hungry. Think how stupid that would be. Look how great I am. 
while we're sitting on restaurant row with all kinds of choices of great food and you can smell it. Look up. I'm really hungry. Praise me. It's stupid. The essence of faith is exactly the same. Whether you desire the most delicious food before your nostrils, you have nothing to boast about. Or whether you desire the most appetizing and delicious one in all existence, if you desire Him, that's faith. You have nothing to boast about. Faith honors the one it desires. Just as much as your belly getting hungrier and hungrier honors the Delicious food. No one thinks how great you are that you ate that day. They might think because of your praise of what you were eating. Wow, i got to get some of that. Faith, that is, desiring God, does not call attention to itself. It calls attention to God's very value. That's why if you're following the logic in these last number of weeks, it makes all the sense in the world for God to say, in response to faith, I am unashamed to be your God. That pleases me very much. Hebrews is clear, without faith. It's impossible to please Him. But if you have faith, you please Him. Because faith is, he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him which implies the essence of faith is please come, God says. Please come to me with the motivation to get. If you don't, I'm not honored. To get satisfied. To get contented. To get forgiveness. To get comfort. To get, to get, to get, to get, to get. Because I, God, intend to have my name honored. And that is the way to honor the name of my Son, Jesus Christ. So, where we've been this morning, you just get it. The essence of Abraham's faith is not at the level of behavior. The essence is at the level of desire. say it that way because next week we're going to come to the next level of how that's connected with behavior, with obedience. But before we close today, I want us to look briefly at the next three verses, 17 to 19, and we'll get a glimpse of obedience, of faith. The essence is desire. It's not the same as the action. But the actions inevitably follow. We see that faith is not only desire. Faith ends up doing things that can only be explained if something going on in Abraham says he must really be trusting that God is going to come through in what he promised him. That's why he does this. Or does that. Faith desires the God of the promises and it trusts that He 
is faithful to deliver. End of issue. And so it acts. And it acts in ways that are utterly out of sync with the world in which we live. Which doesn't believe in God's promises. Notice verse 17. Here it goes. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So picture, Isaac is 13 years old. Abraham lays him on the altar and he was ready to end Isaac's life in obedience to God. Is that astonishing? Why though? We're going to miss the text if we don't get this. We're going to miss what Genesis is about if we don't get it. The reason that that is stunning is not because a dad loves his son, which he does. But the reason it's stunning is not because Moses is going to come 400 years later and God's going to give the Ten Commandments and one of them is thou shalt not murder. That's not why it's stunning. The reason this text is stunning in Genesis and to the writer to the Hebrews is that God promised Abraham many descendants through Isaac, who's 13 and has not born any children. That's why it's stunning. Everything human in Abraham and bent and sinful, the test is that it cries out, if I obey you, then the promise will not be fulfilled. got to feel that because this is your life every day. Let's read it together now again. Verse 17 and 18 together. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was promised him, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. If this boy dies on this altar, then all of our human worldly experience tells us the promise of God will fail. It's logic. It's science. It's not going to happen. And so, what's Abraham's test? His test is, will Abraham use his mere worldly reasoning to get out of his obedience to God? Or will he trust the humanly impossible because God promised? The answer is in verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back.
Abraham offered Isaac according to the Holy Spirit. Put them together. He didn't get a promise, I'll raise him from the dead. He got a promise, I'm going to give you descendants through Isaac. Then later down the road, Abraham got a command, go offer Isaac on an altar. Promise, command, am I going to obey the God who gave the promise? I will. Ultimately, it worked itself out through Abraham. Okay, if he dies, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because he knows God will fulfill His promise. So in closing, let's apply that to us. That was written for us. And we go through Isaac episodes all the time. We feel led of God to maybe do this or that, and we get clear biblical instructions all over the place. And we go through this test where it feels like, if I obey, if I believe that, if I go by what you clearly say in the text of Scripture here, it feels like Isaac on the altar, and my life will be ruined. If I do what the Word of God says, it will cause misery. Do you think that's a temptation for Abraham? Okay. We deal with it all the time. I mean, you probably think of a thousand. I'll just give a few examples. If I believe the instruction from God biblically concerning marriage, which says I have no right to leave this marriage, but I want to leave because I think I'll be happier because it is misery. Okay. We got biblical commands. We got promises. It's an Isaac on the altar. And many times we fail the test because, God, I cannot obey you here because you want me to be happy. Or singleness. I've watched it so often in 26 years as a Christian. Wring the hands. I don't know if I can find a mate. And so we just settle for what God says do not do. Confess Christ. Do not marry an unbeliever. And how many in stark raving disobedience because they're following a desire but not a desire that's rooted in the promise. Or the way you do business. To deal honestly with people you do business with. But if I do do that, I ain't going to make any money. Isaac is on the altar. The way we deal with our finances. God, if I give you first fruits, your promises to supply my needs not going to happen. And so disobedience comes. Or we do it anyway. Like Abraham, knowing you'll be able to resurrect, you can protect me. You have a promise. You have promised. Me or to speak up at work or in a family or in the neighborhood with a particular person that keeps being on your heart about Christ and all the kind of fears or what if this, if I do this, all these other things are going to happen. Isaac is on the altar. A call to be a missionary. A call to foster a little girl. And all that that means if you feel God's calling you to do that. It's Isaac on the altar. 
And when that tug says, I think we're supposed to go this way, we can trust Him. Even though our sin, the nature that's still within us, all of our human limited reasoning says, if I obey here, the prospects look horrible what may come down the road. Maybe we can taste a little bit of what Abraham felt. I say a little because I don't think we've been there. He raised the knife. The question for our daily life is follow Abraham as we wake up every day. Trust his promises which cause the desires for the content in those promises to rise. Which is the power to walk with God and obey God. The question every day is, do we desire God in His way and His promises more than what the world and our human reasoning, apart from God and His Word, dictates? Do we believe, like Abraham, that God will honor our trust in Him and our obedience? Which means, if I obey, can I trust you, God, to work out everything for my good? When we disobey, we, by definition, say in that moment, and every Christian disobeys, and thank goodness Abraham did not perfectly walk in faith when you read the Genesis account. He messed up again and again and again in disobedience. Though we're seeing what obedience of faith is here, we see where it lacked and let's do Hagar, let's lie to the Pharaoh, on and on because his faith wasn't strong enough to trust God then. That's the Christian walk. But every day, the question is, can you trust His commands, His Word, because of the overwhelming, appetizing promises that He, God in Christ, is to you? Let's pray. Father, may Your grace Oh, be poured out upon us. May the encouragement of the Scripture cause hope. As we wake up feeling very little desire for You and for Your promises, may we not be discouraged, but may we say, Ah! Yes, that's why I read Scripture. That's why I pray. That's why I turn to you. That's why I depend on you. That's why I beg of you to work in me this day your perfect will and thus find strength for the moment of need. Oh, Father, continue to glorify Christ in our lives as we go home and in this community of abundant grace. And right now, Father, I beg of you to continue to minister the truth of your promises to our hearts, by Your Spirit, in our time of worship, in Jesus' name.